0: With Chime Secure Credit Card, you can start improving your credit scores with everyday purchases and regular on-time payments. Get started at Chime.com slash build. The Chime Credit Builder Visa Credit Card is issued by Bancorp Bank NA, or Stride Bank N A, members, of FDIC. Results may vary. See Chime.com for details. Terms and conditions apply. Go to Chime.com slash disclosures for details.
1: From the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hi, this is Ben Terrace, calling from The Washington Post. Hi, Jeff. Miss Winfrey, Oprah. Hi there. How are you? Um... It's Lisa Bonas calling for The Post. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Tuesday, March 10th. Today, the lockdown in Italy, the economic fallout of coronavirus, and fighting climate change with trees. Credetemi, non è facile. Sono pienamente consapevole della responsabilità e anche della gravità Per tutta la... On Monday, Italian president Giuseppe Conte made a historic move. Faced with hundreds of coronavirus deaths and more than 10,000 cases in Italy, Conte decided to put the entire country on lockdown. That means no school. Bars and restaurants have to close at 6 p.m. every day. Public gatherings are banned. And anyone traveling in Italy has to carry a document declaring an urgent reason for travel. Hey there.
2: Hey, how's it going?
1: Good, good. You sound clear.
2: (laughs) You sound clear, too.
1: Our producer, Alexis Diao, called up the Rome bureau chief for The Post.
2: Chico Harlan, you are in Rome, where Italy is now under complete lockdown. Tell me, what is it like there?
0: Yes. So on Monday night, the government ordered the lockdown on 60 million people, everybody in the country. And... That puts restrictions on movement for people. Now, you could still potentially go from one part of the country to the other, but only under very narrow circumstances, if it's for essential work, if it's for a health emergency. And as a result, most people are either staying indoors or being in their neighborhood. The level of activity in Rome on the streets has dropped profoundly. And the question, I think, for those who do go outside is, you know, where did everybody go? Are they just inside watching Netflix? Are the lights on? What are they thinking about? Are they stir crazy? This sense of, I would call it, loneliness and depression is is setting in. But there's a sense here that this is going to last for weeks or months, and that the best way to fight this virus is to avoid social contact. And that's hard for Italians. That's hard for anybody.
2: And We should mention this is just day one.
0: This is day one, but daily life, daily routines have come to a stop. And on the street, you're starting to see more masks. You're starting to see people wearing surgical gloves when they're doing their grocery shopping. There's a sense that anybody on the street, if they cough, you have to avoid the the particles that are left in the air. And maybe you could call it paranoia, but of course, people have been transmitting the virus to one another. And that kind of creeps into a society in a very atomizing way where you want to keep your distance from people, but you realize that that also comes with a heavy cost.
2: Now, we know that it's bad there in Italy, but just can you give us a sense of where things are in terms of the numbers?
0: Yeah, the numbers for Italy are increasing exponentially, and it's particularly proving deadly here because seniors are vulnerable to this more than than other people. Italy happens to have the second-highest proportion of seniors in the world next to Japan. And many of the people who are dying here are people in their 70s, 80s, even their 90s.
2: You posted something on Twitter that I just want to bring up about how this response to the outbreak, locking down Italy, is unprecedented, and it's sinking into people's bones in a way that this is very serious. Um, You compared it to World War II.
0: Well... Surely as a, as a peacetime crisis, it's unprecedented in, in post-war Italy. I guess I could say that. And even, even a country that's been through mafia wars and, and terrorist attacks, this, this is something different because it can't be contained easily. Earthquakes, too, for instance, they hit a spot. Here, you don't really know how to confront it. That surely is what happened in Italy. The, the initial attempts to contain it were based on trying to minimize the economic sacrifices and social sacrifices that were necessary. And now the government is moving very drastically in the opposite direction and the idea, I think, on a society-wide level that this is necessary has landed with a huge thud. People are not protesting these measures, uh, by and large. And when when the enormity of the coronavirus lands in your country, only then will the society accept this kind of stuff. The U.S. is not there yet, but it could get there. Who knows, maybe not with restrictions on movement, the U.S. is a much different country than is Italy, but but the enormity of the virus and the way it will upend daily life surely will pose some big questions for the U.S. and for other countries in Europe too, which are uh, not so far behind behind Italy in the number of cases they're seeing.
2: Chico, thanks for taking the time and uh, stay safe.
0: Thank you. I will. You too.
2: Chico Harlan
1: is the Rome bureau chief for The Post. So let me just say we're going to have recessions in many countries. That includes Germany, Italy, Singapore, Japan, and that list is going to get longer. On
3: Wall Street this morning, stock fell so quickly when the markets opened. Trading was suspended for 15 minutes. The Dow collapsing around 1,900 points
4: today. Its worst single-day loss ever.
3: There has been a shocking change in the last week from economists and workers across the country thinking that this coronavirus shock was going to be a short-lived hit to having a real fear that this could send the U.S. and the global economy into a recession. I'm Heather Long, the economics correspondent at The Washington Post. Even for people
1: who don't really follow the stock market, I think what transpired on Monday was very alarming.
3: It was a huge drop. Anytime you're talking about a biggest move since 2008, you never want to hear the word 2008, that great recession, financial crisis, companies going bankrupt, homeowners going bankrupt. It's a different scenario today. But what's basically happened is a few weeks ago, everyone was thinking, okay, coronavirus, you know, it's a a supply shock. That means there aren't as many ships coming from China to the United States. But what is making this a real serious concern are two things. One is the possibility of Americans not being able to pay their bills if if they're not working, if their hours are being cut back. We already have seen some layoffs happening at the Los Angeles port. And so as that grows and spreads, That really hurts individuals, and it ripples through the economy. People aren't going out to spend. They are literally in their homes. The second big worry that's popped up on the radar is corporate debt, so businesses, both small and large, potentially not being able to pay their bills. We have had an unprecedented run of corporate debt, so companies borrowing money. We've got $10 trillion worth of corporate debt, something we've never seen before And what happened early this week is not only do we have these fears that airlines and hotels and travel companies are being impacted by the coronavirus, but now we have... Uh, oil price war that's threatening to take down energy companies in the United States. So the list of people and companies needing help is growing very quickly. Because we've talked at multiple points during the last year about
1: this idea of leveraged loans for corporations or for companies, and that a lot of companies had been taking out a lot of debt in the hopes of growing their business and becoming more profitable as the economy continues to get better. But that's banking on the idea that the economy is getting better. And if the economy doesn't get better and gets worse and these companies don't perform well, but they've already taken out all these loans, it feels like something kind of similar to what happened with mortgages in 2008 where all of it could come
3: crashing down really fast. Exactly, The dirty secret of the economy in the past decade is there's been a huge issuance of what you call junk bond or near junk bond quality debt for for businesses. So those companies in eras of old probably wouldn't have been able to get those loans. But with the borrowing rates being so low for so long, banks were looking to make deals, they were looking to loan, and they lent money to people who, well, in this case companies, who probably shouldn't have gotten some of those loans. It's sort of the old story of when the tide goes out, who's wearing a swimsuit and who's not. And you also mentioned oil prices. What is going on with oil? So the economy and financial markets are facing a one-two punch right now. Coronavirus is making people stay home. They're not traveling as much. And so there's just less demand for oil. You know, you don't need to drive around as much. Airplanes aren't flying as much. Factories aren't running as much. So you don't need as much oil. And then on top of that, the major producers in the world, the Saudis and, and Russia, they were trying to respond to coronavirus by cutting back on the amount that they were producing every day. So Saudi Arabia leads OPEC, that group of, of major oil producers. They were trying to meet over the weekend to say, hey, come on, everybody cut back a little bit so the price will go up. Well, the Russians said, "Mm, no, we're not going to do that. And the Saudis said, well, if you're not cutting back, then I'm not cutting back. So we just have this massive glut of oil. We have too much oil in the market. And when you have too much supply and not enough demand, the price goes boom down.
1: But why would they want to do that? It seems like that would be an intentional choice to hurt other countries, other people, but also hurt themselves.
3: It does, but you're trying to be the last man standing. So the oil price earlier this week hit about $30 a barrel, most producers in the world, including the United States and Europe, cannot survive for long at that level. Not only are they not covering their costs, they're you know, barely making anything. The one exception to that is the Saudis. They would definitely like the price to be higher, but their government has enough money to carry them through this time period. And so basically, it's, it's a game of chicken, and they think the Saudis know that they can outlast most of the other players in this market.
1: Is there any upside to what's going on? Anything that's actually good that's happening to the economy right now?
3: Well... It's hard to use the term good during a a health crisis, but I think um, from an economic and financial perspective, I'd say two points. Number one, this is a great, great time for Clorox, for Netflix. Stock (laughs) is soaring for the maker of Lysol. Uh, Purell, I would probably put on that list. Yes. So so some companies are, are having a great time. Same thing with online educational providers. So anything where you stay home is doing well. The other thing that you're seen is mortgage rates are Hit uh, an all-time low in the last few days. So the lowest price that I saw was three point two nine on a 30 year fixed mortgage. and it's that's it's unheard of. It's never happened before, and it's causing a ton of people to refinance right now and uh, also to try to get a mortgage if they can. Unfortunately, home prices are a little bit higher in many parts of the country than most of us would like, but uh, this is a, a great time for real estate.
1: I'm curious about playing things out under the assumption, or at least the hope, that coronavirus becomes more under control in the coming months and that maybe in the summer or in the early fall, it's not kind of the global crisis. How resilient is the economy to this? And how big are the chances that we could still avoid a recession and just have this be more of a short-term downturn?
3: That is definitely possible, that we could prevent this from turning into a recession. What every economist across the political spectrum has said to me on the phone in recent days is, we have to act quickly. The U.S. Central Bank has already cut interest rates, and everyone is watching every whisper out of Congress and the White House to see when they are going to agree on some sort of aid package.
2: We're going to be meeting with uh, House Republicans, Mitch McConnell, everybody. And
0: discussing a possible payroll tax uh, cut or relief, substantial relief, very substantial relief. That's a big, that's a big number.
2: Uh, we're also going to be talking about hourly wage earners getting uh, help so that they can uh, be in a position where they're not going to ever miss a paycheck.
3: How big is it going to be? Who is it going to help? Again, the primary economic concerns right now are you want to prevent small and large companies from going bankrupt, and you want to ensure you get people who are getting hours cut back, who don't have that paid sick leave, to get those people money so that they are not unable to pay their bills. And that eventually, when this coronavirus goes away, hopefully, people will have enough money in their pockets to start going to restaurants again, to go on the cruises even again, to to get out and to get money moving again in the economy as quickly as possible.
1: But it seems like if that's going to happen, then it needs to happen very quickly in order to prevent any of the long-term effects that could potentially happen from this.
3: Sooner is definitely better right now.
1: Heather Long covers economics for The Post.
4: On the mountainside in the village of Quayanan, forestry scientists are working with farmers to cultivate new trees as part of a nationwide greening program. The greening program is meant to reforest the Philippines, which is one of the most heavily deforested areas in Southeast Asia. These farmers are on the front lines of reforesting the tropics which is a major part of how conservationists think we might be able to fight climate change. My name is Ben Garino, and I'm a science reporter at The Washington Post. We're in the middle of a climate crisis, and we know that there's too much greenhouse gas, there's too much carbon dioxide in particular in the atmosphere, and there have been a lot of engineering challenges in trying to figure out how can we get this out of the atmosphere. And so there have been folks who've designed machines that can do it, but people have pointed and, and rightly so to, to trees and then say, you know, trees are carbon capture machines if you want to frame them that way. They just suck carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere and they turn that into sugar and carbohydrates and it becomes part of them. Large carbon sinks like forests can be very powerful. The EPA estimated that American vegetation offset about 11% of U.S. carbon emissions in 2017. And if these carbon sinks can be so powerful, imagine what even a larger one can do. There have been a lot of different programs to get people to reforest trees. We have things like 1T.org, which is an initiative that Donald Trump endorsed at Davos.
2: Today, I'm pleased to announce the United States will join One Trillion Trees Initiative. (laughs) And in doing so, we will continue to show strong leadership in restoring, growing and better managing our trees and our forests.
4: There are things like the Trillion Tree Project that a group of German conservationists have been promoting. In 2011, the UN had a Billion Tree Campaign, which has merged with the Trillion Tree Initiative to become the Trillion Tree Campaign. So there's this big history of, at least in the past decade or so, of people setting very ambitious targets to plant more trees.
1: So, what is the strategy or the plan behind just planting a bunch of trees? Like, are, do people want to just plant them anywhere or in particular places? Or, like, what is the best way for tree planting to be effective?
4: So, in order for tree planting to be effective, you have to plant the right species of tree at the right time of year in the right habitat. If if you plant the wrong species in the wrong spot, those trees might not survive, and so you're wasting all of that money and initiative and goodwill in trying to have these reforestation projects. So I can think of one good example where it's, it's being done well is out in the Philippines. There are groups of scientists who are teaching farmers how to plant trees Uh, the right species of trees, to grow healthy saplings and to, to dig the right holes even. The farmers raise seedlings. They're maybe a foot tall, small trees that are grown in a nursery. And then the villagers will carry them up to the mountain. And right there on the steep slopes, they'll bend down and they'll make holes about a foot deep, a foot wide, that will catch the rainwater so these these new trees will get enough moisture to to live and be healthy there is a big awareness even among rural farmers in the philippines that trees are ecologically important it's really important on a global scale to reforest in the tropics because Tropical trees are where trees grow the fastest. It's warm there, so they can grow year-round. So that means they're sucking proportionally the most carbon out of the out of the atmosphere. I was out in a very rural area on an island called Biliran in a village called Kauayanan, and I could talk to... Folks who've lived there for 50, 60 years and they can look around and they can say this area used to be all covered in these beautiful emerald forests. Now it's yellow grassland and now it's where people are raising their water buffalo or they're planting corn. And they know that the trees used to prevent erosion. They've had really bad uh, mudslides. When typhoons come through, the trees used to act as a barrier. So there's an awareness there that trees have this this protective value. But there's a, also an economic incentive for them. Farmers like the folks at Kauai'anon need trees as a source of livelihood. They use them to cook with. They use them to heat their homes. They can rely on trees as a source of construction material or even food if they grow coconuts or things like that. Back a hundred years ago, about seventy percent of the Philippines was covered in in jungle, in in forest. And because of aggressive logging policies, that's gone down to about it's about 19% in the nineties, it's come back up to about 23% or so now. But there's a lot of potential in the Philippines.
1: But but how do you make that case, especially in places that have a history of aggressive logging? That the most beneficial way to treat these trees is just to let them grow rather than cutting them down to sell them for lumber or as fuel or to clear the space for other types of farming that would have more short-term benefits.
4: That's where forestry and economics comes together. And there are experts like a scientist I shadowed named Nestor Gregorio, who is from the Philippines. And his big research push is how do we treat reforestation as a sustainable livelihood.
5: There are some members who are concerned about climate change. At the end of the day, it's still the um, the economic aspect. People perceive that there's more return in planting corn rather than, compared to growing trees, because the owner cut all down all the trees.
4: He goes from village to village in the Philippines showing the farmers that here's the best way to cheaply and effectively grow saplings, and some of these are things like coffee or banana that will be grown and then harvested, and that's a source of income for them.
5: Oh, yeah, they have started planting some of the bananas you now, the upper part of the slope. So, the intention of this people's organization here is to showcase that um, there's more than just planting, you know, corn and. Um, if they're successful in growing seedlings to become trees, it means that all other requisites are in place. The human capitals improved, the financial capital must have been improved, the skills of the people's organization must have been improved. That's why they were able to sustainably manage the plantation that they established.
4: There are areas where the Philippines government have given a hectare to farmers and have said that you can farm here, but you have to protect the surrounding areas. So there are ways to incentivize farmers to be able to have a livelihood and also protect the surrounding area. The Philippines still has to contend with illegal logging with unauthorized harvests of their forests. Uh, I was outside one environmental office in a province called Cebu and there's just a there's a fleet of trucks that are parked outside this office and all of those flatbed trucks were filled with wood that the officials told me had been illegally cut down. So that's still very much an issue in the Philippines. They're also a country that is feeling the brunt of climate change. They are an island nation. They get hit with pretty bad typhoons, and there's some good evidence that climate change, while it's not necessarily increasing the frequency of these storms, it can increase the intensity. And so when you get these very high-speed winds and storm surges coming through, those can knock down trees too. If those challenges are overcome in the Philippines, it could be a really valuable tool for the country and also an example for the world on, on how trees can be used to help lift farmers out of poverty, be a force to rejuvenate habitats, and suck carbon out of the atmosphere for climate change. there are thousands of other farming groups like this one across the island nation. And even across Asia and some of the other tropical regions, what's being learned in villages like Quinon can be applied elsewhere, places like Papua New Guinea, which also has similar deforestation problems. And if you frame it through, you know, here's a, here's a relatively simple thing that, that we can do to reduce the amount of carbon in the atmosphere, I think people pretty readily get on board with that. I want to qualify that and say that even climate change researchers who support reforestation will say, we need to cut carbon emissions. This is not a replacement for reducing our reliance on fossil fuels. As powerful as a tree can be at removing carbon from the atmosphere, if we're pumping more and more carbon carbon and other greenhouse gases into the atmosphere, then that benefit will be wiped out.
1: Ben Guarino writes about science for The Post. for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Tonight is so-called Big Tuesday. Idaho, Michigan, Mississippi, Missouri, North Dakota, and Washington State are all holding their Democratic primaries. On tomorrow's episode, we'll have a recap of the results and what this all could mean for Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders in their quest to rack up delegates. Until then, I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post.